This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 39. It's found on page 467 in the Bibles in your rows. It's also printed in your bulletin. And you're welcome to follow along in your Bible if you brought it with you this morning. Or just listen as I read God's word. Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, New City. My name is Ryan Zhang. I'm one of the pastors here. I feel like the universe is playing a joke on me. We are finishing up our summer psalm series today, and we are going to end on Psalm 39. And out of all the days... This has to happen on the 4th of July. What a perfect psalm to go with fireworks and barbecue, right? There's a story of a reporter going to visit John Adams in 1826, right before the 50th anniversary of American independence. By the way, if you didn't know, John Adams is my favorite president. That's why I married a lady named Abigail. Adams died on July 4th, 1826. My high school AOL screen name was John Adams, 1826. I was very cool. Also, Alexander Hamilton. Anyhow, this reporter came to visit Adams right before the 50th anniversary of independence, and he asked Adams to propose a toast for the 4th of July, and the reporter was expecting some kind of grand oratory, and Adams just said, I give you independence forever. So in the spirit of Adams, let me propose a toast of all of you for this 4th of July. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. 
Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So cheers. <laughs> Try this out tonight with your friends and family. It's printed in your bulletin. But the real reason I feel like the universe is playing a joke on me is that I don't feel qualified to preach the psalm. This sermon may come across empty in two ways. One, you are like me, young and beautiful and handsome and charming, right? Right. It is easy to believe that life is long; the best days are still ahead of us. The psalm does not make very much sense to you. You may be wondering what does the psalm have to do with me, and if that's the case, I hope that you could just file the sermon in your in the back of your head. Because it may be useful for you in the later time, and maybe it may not be long before life brings you some sobering realities. And two, if you're in the throat, throat of deep pain, I also haven't had enough life experience to preach the psalms to you. And just looking across the crowd today, I know many of you have gone through family sickness, infertility, miscarriages, divorces, loss of a child, loss of a spouse. Who am I to preach the psalm to you? And perhaps the best I can do is to pray this psalm with you, pray for you. And that's one of the things all of us can take away from today. Even if you're not living in deep pain, you know someone who does. Pray this psalm on behalf of your friends and family. Plead with God for them. But now, what does this psalm actually say? The first few verses tell us that David burned with anger. He was afraid that he would just lash out and sin. You know, have, you may have moments when you were so angry that you had to intentionally shut up, because if you said what's in your mind at that moment, you would cause irreparable damage. So David says, "I'm mute and silent." But his distress continued to grow. His heart became hot. The fire burned, and finally he spoke. And this is what David says in the rest of the psalm. There's a lesson to be learned. There's a way God teaches the lesson, and there's a way we can respond. So there's a lesson to be learned. David prays that God would teach him this lesson, and the lesson is this: Life is short. Life is ephemeral. Ephemeral. Life is empty. Verse four: O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Reading the psalm may remind you of Ecclesiastes. It's not an accident. Not only that the theme of the psalm is similar to Ecclesiastes, it actually uses the same language as Ecclesiastes. Or Ecclesiastes used the same language as the psalm because Psalm thirty-nine was written first. What's the most famous word from Ecclesiastes? Vanity, right? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The Hebrew word for vanity, havel, is used three times in this psalm. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And not just this word, but look at all the other words David used to describe life. He says life is fleeting. It's a few hand breaths. Life is nothing. Man is a shadow, a sojourner, and a guest. 
That's not all. To make sure he drives home this point, he uses the word surely multiple times. Surely all mankind stands a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Now, through all the pain that David spends suffering, this is the lesson that he prays that he will learn. If you're watching the fireworks tonight with your friends and with your kids, and when the fireworks are going off and everyone's cheering and applauding and partying, I want you to point to the fireworks and say to your kids, life is like fireworks. It is short. It's meaningless. Vanity, mankind is vanity. We'll all walk around in shadows. These lessons may come as natural to some of you as you go through one heartbreak after another. The King David himself is no stranger to suffering. He was the least of his eight brothers. He was hunted like a dog by his father-in-law. And after he was crowned king, he lost a child in infancy. One of his daughters was raped. One of his sons led a coup against him, and many of his generals betrayed him. This guy just couldn't catch a break. And yet after all of this, he still feels the need to ask God to teach him the lesson. Why? Because we don't like this lesson. It's painful. There are several days in my life that I would rather forget. One of the most recent ones is November 12th. About 10 days after the 2020 election, I was getting ready for a trip to New Orleans to enjoy some jazz and gumbo. And that morning, Abigail milked her gynecologist for some discomfort in her, ab- in her abdomen, which turned into a CT scan in the afternoon. And then we got a notification in the early evening that her CT scan report was ready. Now kids were watching TV, and she looked through the reports, and she looked up at me, and she said, it's not good. Neither of us understood all the technical terms, but we just saw 11 different measurements of masses, and then the word metastases over and over. And I had enough experience with my dad's cancer a few years ago that this is very bad news. And later that evening, her gynecologist called us, and she started the call by saying, we're going to have a very difficult conversation right now. And you know the rest of the story. I remember walking our sons to school the next day, which is a you know, pretty typical thing for me to do by myself. But that morning, everything felt different. And I kept wondering, is this what the future will look like, me and my kids by myself? Now, I'm happy to report seven months later, Abigail responded very well to her treatment. She had a clean scan at the beginning of June. And it's tempting for us to just put it all behind us and move on. But I know many of you have family members here who will not recover from life-threatening illnesses. And we had a party a few weeks ago to celebrate her birthday, and Abigail joked that the theme for her birthday should be 35 and still alive. But then less than a week after her birthday, my best friend from college, the best man at my wedding, who had a PhD from Cambridge and was working as a professor in Oregon, he went out serving with some friends and died in an accident. He was 34. You know what experiences like that do to you? It's like the sky is falling on you and you just want to crawl up, curl up in a ball. The next few days, I just want to sleep away. 
Nothing feels safe anymore. Nothing feels predictable. How do you keep going on in life, knowing that life is so fragile and things could turn upside down in just a moment? And even somehow we could get through this. What's next tragedy waiting around the corner? And last week I saw my former pastor in St. Louis, and he's also gone through some pretty significant trials in his family. And he said to me, "You know, we just never age out of suffering." And I said to him, "I feel like I'm just aging into suffering. Why dwell on these things? Why remember the fact that life is so fragile, that it could break at any moment?" And the psalm tells us why. There's a deep, important lesson that God wants to continue to drill to our bones until we learn it. And how does God teach that lesson? He teaches with a heavy hand. David says, "You have made my days a few handbreadths. It is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me, and I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him." God wanted us to know the fragility of life through pain upon pain upon pain. Because, like it or not, we all have to recognize this reality sooner or later. As Pastor Josh always says in funerals, the death rate for this room is 100%. David's life demonstrates for us some pains are results of his own sins, some are caused by other people's sins, some are part of the brokenness of this world, some are completely mysterious to us. Job never learned why he had to suffer all these pains, and we don't always fully know why we suffer, but we at least know this much. Pain is God's way to teach us our fragility. The pastor Brian mentioned this C.S. Lewis quote at the beginning of the sermon series: "God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, and shouts in our pain." Is this megaphone to rouse a deaf world? God uses pain so much so that David had to ask him to stop. He can't take it anymore. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. It seems like God just wouldn't let up. Make it stop. We like to think of God's presence like a whisper, like a warm, comforting blanket, a gracious friend, a gentle father. And those are all true. But sometimes God's presence also comes as a discipline. Now, Hebrews 12 says, "It is for discipline that you have to be. You have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, we don't like this kind of presence, but God is present nevertheless. In contrast, that to Romans 1, Paul writes, 'God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity.'" To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped the serf, worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. You may have heard people say, "I, I think God just wants me to be happy." Now, what they want is a vending machine God who would give them whatever they desire to numb their pain. But what if that's actually the worst thing that could happen to you? For God to just give you whatever desires you have to let you follow your own heart. What if the 
constant presence of pain in our lives meant to show us that God has not given up on you. He is still working in you. There's a godly lesson here that's more important than our earthly happiness. I was reading an article on the Atlantic called What I've Learned About Managing Eternity. It's written on September 11, 2020, in the deep, in the middle of this pandemic. And the author began by saying, when the lockdown was announced in California back in March, I didn't panic right away. You want me to binge watch Netflix? Done. Order in pizza as a stable? Snap. Live like a desert hermit? No problem. I was used to doing these things during the acute depressive episode. No, only nobody had given me the permission before. And instead of being infused with shame, I felt proud of my hard-won experience. The first few weeks, I figured, what an opportunity. I'll rest up and catch up on my reading. Maybe watch some of the amazing TV shows my friends kept telling me about. And imagine the pandemic were over in a few weeks. We have been a pleasant memory. We would probably have learned nothing at all. But then she writes, a month into the pandemic, I finished all the books on my iPad, binge-watched until I was thoroughly over it, and ripped up my self-portrait in a fit of frustrated pique. I'm bored and have nothing to do. Time has no meaning here. An hour is endless. Nothing stops me from falling forever. That forever is by far the worst part of depression. And I'm sure you guys could resonate with this. This may be giving you PTSD right now. You're welcome. So this writer called her therapist. And her therapist says, it's not just you. Everyone's having a hard time. And this is what how her therapist explains the depression. It's the uncertainty of it all. Human beings can stand anything so long as it's time limited. The thing about this pandemic is that gets to all of us is that there seemed to be no end in sight, especially back in the fall. We can, we can endure all the cicadas because we knew in six weeks they'll be all gone. No, even with Abigail's cancer, once we knew that her chemo was working, we were looking toward the light of, at the end of the tunnel. We don't mind being Joseph. The man's Bible study is going through Joseph's story right now. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, unjustly framed by his boss wife, forgotten in prison. See, I don't, I don't mind being Joseph. As long as I know that 12 years later I'll be made prime minister and you all have to bow down to me. But what if there's no end in sight? The pain just keeps piling on and some wounds just stay open forever. Or as the people in New York City say, what if the end of the tunnel is just New Jersey? And what if instead of being Joseph, you are John the Baptist? You waited for the Messiah your whole life and finally you received confirmation that the Messiah is here and you get beheaded. What hope's there for you? Or worse yet, what if you are like Jesus? A man, a man of sorrow and well acquainted with grief, you live the righteous life, but at the end everyone turns on you, even your best friend deny you. You're ex, you executed by unjust government and you die a gruesome death. What's the point? There's really no point. As Paul writes, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But there are two images in this psalm that remind us that this life is not the end. The first is verse 11. David says, You consume like a moth what is dear to him. No moth ruins things. They eat through your clothes, especially the expensive ones. But David didn't know this. Many years later, one of his descendants would tell people, Do not lay up treasure for yourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There's no security in treasure. It does not belong to you. But Jesus goes on to say, Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. There's a place called heaven. That's beyond what we see here. And there, our treasure, our happiness, our joy is secure. And the other image is in verse 12. David says, I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. No doubt David's thinking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised to give them the promised land, but they wandered around all their lives, and the only plot of land they owned was their grave. And David was comparing his life to theirs. But David didn't know this. Many years later, the author of Hebrews would say this about Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus made it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham died waiting David died waiting. John the Baptist died waiting. Jesus died waiting. Even Joseph died waiting. Remember, even after he rose to power in Egypt, he told his family to not bury him in Egypt, but to keep his bones out until, he returned, until they returned to Israel 400 years later. These people wander around the earth like strangers and exiles and all die waiting for something that this world cannot give them. And yet they waited. What's the point? The point is to shout to the world through all of this, through all the pain and loss and grief and sickness. We still hope. We still laugh and dance and sing and party. It's like giving the middle finger to Satan because he he can't mess with us. David says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And if David knows that his hope is in the Lord, how much more so for us? The moths and strangers are curses in the Old Testament, but they lost all their power in the New Testament because we know heaven is real. Jesus' death is different. Jesus didn't just stay dead. He rose from the dead. He is the first fruit of the new creation, the new heaven and new earth, our final home. God's not just a vending machine God who gives us whatever we want to numb our pain. God is a resurrection God who will make all of our pain untrue. This is the lesson that God wants us to learn. Life is short and painful, but there's new life on the other side. If you're from New York City, the other end of the tunnel is not just New Jersey. It's the New Jerusalem. There's a lesson we need to learn, and yet we don't want to learn it because it's so incredibly painful. 
So how do we respond to God? Well, first, with humility. Does your suffering lead you to complain or repentance? Before you ask God to remove your suffering from you and give your life back, have you meditated on its lessons? Notice here, David prays for, before David prays for relief in this psalm, he asks God to teach him this lesson. And this lesson is not automatic. Plenty of people feel depressed by life and die brokenhearted. And what makes this lesson possible? You pray to God like David. Ask God to drill this lesson to your bones. And humility is not natural. But it keeps you from growing bitter and angry toward God's discipline. God's not just giving you pain to mess with you. God is saving you through the pain. Every time pain comes, it's another chance to learn this lesson more deeply. As Psalm 126 says, we sold our tears. We sold our tears. The deeper our pain is here, the deeper it drives us to look to the new heavens and the new earth. But humility is not in love. So second, we plead. If you're sitting here thinking the whole time, forget this, or some other stronger terms, that's okay. You could be upset about tragic things happening to you, even though we could all grow from them. David did not want to speak up at the beginning, but he wasn't sure whether he should, but he just couldn't take it anymore, so he spoke up, and that was okay. Now, God included the psalm in the, psal- in the psalms to teach us how to pray. And David did not take all the pain like a stoic. David pleaded, stop this. This is too much. God's presence could come like a discipline, but David here even pleaded that God would just go away, leave him alone. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and I'm no more. It's okay to say to God to go away. It's okay to throw a tantrum. God can take it. He will know how to respond wisely. You know, sometimes my son throws a tantrum. I know that I should just leave him alone and try again later. Sometimes he throws a tantrum. I have to stay with him and walk with him through his emotions and make sure he learns his lesson. God knows what to do with you. If you know how to deal with your kids' tantrums, God knows what to do with yours. Your pastor just gave you permission to throw a tantrum, so do it. Like I said earlier, pray the Psalms with your friends and for your friends. If you see your friends suffering, if you see that it's just too much for them, pray to God to let up. Ask God to give your friend a break. That's one of the best things you can do for them. You know how I know? Because many of you did this for us. Now we are a young church here in New City, and this sermon may seem may not seem very applicable to you. Although I know that some of you are going through some very hard times. America is a youth culture. We like young presidents rather than old people. But you may know someone who have lived a lot of life. Their suffering just make them so dignified that you want to stand up when they enter into a room. Lately, I've had a chance to meet with a few New City people who are like that. They're a bit above the average age here. And they have gone through, I've listened to the stories, how much pain they have gone through and how hard life has been for them. It's, it's unfair. 
but I could sense no bitterness in their words, no cursing against God, no suppressed mysteries in their hearts. They still have hope. And I think it's because they know the psalm well. Maybe all become like that. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the psalm, the ways that you've taught us how to pray through our pain, to give us the permission to throw a tantrum, to know that we can talk to you like this, that pain sometimes is too much. It gets to us and makes us want to curl up and we don't want to face life anymore. Father, we pray that we would have the faith and the comfort to even shout to you and throw a tantrum at you and that you would instill to us the hope of resurrection, to renew in us the hope we have in Christ, to know that you are with us, that Jesus died for us so that we could go through the pain with hope and that you would help us to work through our angers and pain and that you would be with us. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.